0: one. In this episode, we're going to be talking about atonement and why it was that Jesus went to the cross to address the issues of sin. Welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor.
1: I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow.
0: I'm Anthony Alegria. I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. In this episode, again, we are going to be talking about atonement. And bear with us for this because it is a bit wordy, but if you can hold on and grab something to, to keep you firmly stuck to the ground. As we go through some of these big words, you are going to find some really interesting concepts. And there's actually a lot of theology beyond that with, in the issue of atonement that we're going to talk about today. So it's going to be a really fun conversation. But let's jump right into it. This is Article 6 in the Church of the Nazarene's Articles of Faith. And of course, it is on atonement. Pastor Amanda, would you like to read for us today what is actually stated in Article 6?
1: Sure. So the article reads as follows. We believe that Jesus Christ, by his sufferings, by the shedding of his own blood and by his death on the cross, made a full atonement for all human sin, and that this atonement is the only ground of salvation, and that it is sufficient for every individual of Adam's race. The atonement is graciously efficacious for the salvation of those incapable of moral responsibility and for the children in innocency, but is efficacious for the salvation of those who reach the age of responsibility only when they repent and believe.
0: All right, so we get some really fun words such as <laughs> efficacious and innocency. <laughs> yeah, really fun words. I like it. You like it, Amanda?
1: It's a little bit of a, a tongue twister for me, but um, with all things, I, I think these words are intentional or you can only hope that they're very intentional. So it'll be it's, it, interesting to, to discover why they were chosen.
0: Anthony is always wanting us to adopt like a thick Southern accent <laughs> from like, like old South Carolina, something like that. And this is the place where the southern gentleman would really be at his finest to come in and say, "Oh Lord, the children in their (laughs) innocency, but is efficacious for the salvation of those who reach the age of responsibility."
2: Anyway, actually, totally right. I didn't realize that. This is the perfect statement for that. This, this
0: this is a good place for a southern accent. Anyways, let's let's have a good conversation about this. So, Pastor Mike, what does atonement even mean? Because that word in and of itself can be one that perplexes people.
3: Well, Talmud is uh, if you look at the etymology, it goes back to Anglo-Saxon and it means uh, uh, at at one um, making at one or so it's a a unifying um, and identification type
0: of word. Yeah, the etymological root of this actually is at one mint. And I know that sounds really crude to say. it sounds like someone <laughs> who's not read this word before trying to work it out and In a sense, that's really the the history of the word. It is this idea of reconciling some things, bringing them together. There's an element of redemption built into this word. And as we carry on this conversation, I hope that we will be able to explain what it means for all of these ideas to come together. What is being united? What is being dealt with? All right, so the first proposition I want us to discuss is as follows. One might ask, and I think this is a very logical question, why was it necessary for God, the master of the universe, the one who spoke creation into place. Why was it necessary for him to send his begotten son, and not just an chosen son, not just a randomly elected one, but why was it necessary for him to send his begotten son to die? Could not this God with this immense power to speak creation into place, could he not just use that same power to speak away the effects of sin? Pastor Amanda, what is going on with this? Why in the world is it that that God didn't just speak the effects of sin away. Why did he send his son?
1: Well, I think we have to, you talk about the, the creator of the universe, the master of the universe, um, why he God chose not to do that. And I think we have to look back to creation and see how God created the world. He created order and structure, and ultimately he created beings of free will. And so to simply uh, snap his fingers and to eradicate sin or to eradicate uh, the consequences of sin would be ultimately to eradicate free will and the choices that people made. And again, if we can look back in the creation story, we see that God uh, created the the perfect garden for Adam and Eve, and he gives them this command of not eating the fruit. And it's not a test. It's not a trick. It simply is God's way of saying, if at any point you don't want to trust me for life and for provision, this is your way out. And so God has always allowed uh, people, humanity, Adam's race, uh, to have that freedom, will, and to have that choice. And so redemption, reconciliation, atonement has to be a choice if God is to continue to respect how creation uh, was originally designed.
0: All right. So you had a lot of interesting ideas brought into our conversation. The idea of choice being something instrumental there. God is, is one who chooses to keep his covenant with his people. One of the important theological ter- topics we've been talking about here with locally, where I'm pastoring at in Jolton, and also with some of the stuff online here at Kingdom of the Lagos is this idea that God actually has an allegiance to his people. When God commands people that they're going to be in a covenant with him, and he says, look, I'm going to bless you, you will bless others, the whole earth is going to be blessed. God also is, is entering into a relationship with people, and he has allegiance to this. A lot of times people talk about fear of the Lord, and they may relate it to nobility or something like that. But there's this idea that God has authority and jurisdiction over the world. He is the master of the universe, and he adds allegiance to those who are within his jurisdiction. Pastor Mike, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, uh,
3: God's people have always been a covenant people with God, and so there, the, this agreement... Um, Often made with a representative, whether that be uh, Noah, Abraham, Jacob. The the thing is um, that that it's an understanding. If you look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter five, it says, "The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers alone." Emphasized there, but did the Lord the Lord make this covenant? but with us who are all of us here alive this day. So it's a, it's a, even though the word alone is not there, but it is with not only with our fathers, but with us here today. And so there's an understanding that there is um, a relationship that we are entered into this covenant with God, not just Abraham, Noah, or, or uh, you know, Jacob.
0: Yeah, and as we look to our, our scripture that I want to read in regards to this is Luke chapter 23 through verse 45, and, or 44 and 45. So Luke 23, 44 and 45. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed. in, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So what we find here is that when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple is torn. And what is happening here is that people are allowed to come in close proximity to God. And this is an eternal thing. As Pastor Mike was talking about, that there is something which has an effect over all of human generations, not just one there in the past or perhaps one there in the specific moment when Jesus was living or one much further forwards in time where we're at today, it doesn't matter. There is a tearing down of the veil in the temple, which again, it kept people from entering into the holies of holies. It kept people, in a sense, separated from the presence of God. But now there's this idea that people can come in close proximity to God. And you know, why is there even necessary for a sacrifice to be made? That's a really logical question, I think, one might have, Pastor Amena?
1: Well, and I think this is something that's really interesting, especially when you bring this passage up. Is when a lot of people hear this and they're saying, "Okay, the temple, uh, the curtain in the temple is torn. Now everyone has access uh, to God." And then the question comes: Well, wait, wasn't the temple uh, built because of a commandment that God gave His people? Um, and and so I mean, it almost seems like a cursory reading if you're not really understanding the whole story that is being portrayed. Um, it, it almost sounds like God is kind of uh pigeonholed himself into a corner a little bit and and is trying to then like almost redeem people because He created the problem in the first place. And that's not the case. but but so, to your specific question, why was there even the need for a sacrifice? Why was this this drive to have a perfect lamb? And then why does Christ come as the ultimate sa- sacrifice? And again, I think something where Pastor Mike was talking about, like there was always this agent. That that could could be the visible sign of God's covenant. And so we see that with Moses, uh, we see that even with Abraham, with the the, um, the covenant of circumcision, um, there was. And then again, the temple becomes that as the people are established in their land. There's something that shows this is who, uh, this is how you know, this is how you interact with God. And yet, over time, people replaced the symbol that was supposed to draw people to God. They almost made it the God themself uh, itself the symbol became the meaning almost and so for the te- for the curtain to be torn in two was to say even the structures and the systems and the analogies that you use to represent god those will fail if they if you ever make them more important so christ comes to save us and to redeem us um yes from sin and from brokenness but even from ourselves and from our the only things we try to um put as as powerful as god
0: to to build off of what you're talking about a little bit amanda and again we're of a younger generation we can use some younger references it's kind of like in the episode of of spongebob where patrick and spongebob they get a box and or they buy a tv and they they get this flat screen tv and they just throw it in the trash and like oh we just wanted the box they get more excited with something which was a a lesser tool you know the box Mm -hmm. is a tool for bringing the tv to you but they're like oh this is more fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is great uh, Squidward, you can have the TV for free because that's the garbage. Who wants a TV when you can have the box of imagination? Um, Pastor Mike, your thoughts on this? Um SpongeBob?
1: No. No, oh, okay. Back uh, to
0: uh, atonement. I don't I can't make many atone comments. Atone for on our Sponge sins Bob. of yeah, atone for our sins of um, But in the sacrificial see, animal,
3: I called. think there's a lot of atonement theories out there. One of them is substitution. And so when you look at the animal being sacrificed, it's not just a, a substitution for uh, the person, but the actual laying on of the hands and and the identification with the animal so that there's a spiritual um, identification that this animal's going to die. This is a spiritual, um, well, let's just call it a death. And so when we move into the atonement of Christ, we see that it is that identification that we have not only with the cross and the
0: death of Christ, but also the resurrection and life. Yeah. And there is this idea that there is a need for a sacrifice. If you go back to the era when Jesus is when he is born of mary when this whole advent of the the christ child happens there was an understanding within the jewish world that if you wanted to come close in proximity to god you had to make a sacrifice and this was just generally how people understood things this idea that you can just pray to god or you can be close to jesus jesus can be your friend all of these things are revelations which come after jesus his work on the ministry this is something which seems very familiar to us in the christian world but if you go back 2000 years when the advent of Jesus was actually taking place, it would have been very unusual for people to think you can actually come in close proximity to God. Again, there's both a literal veil there in the temple, but also there's a bit of a metaphorical abstract veil throughout the universe where there's something kind of keeping you from God and you don't have this ability for a real personal intimate relationship with God. The, the mechanisms of prayer, the mode of thinking, it's all a little bit different. But after Jesus goes to the cross, he makes a sacrifice. And that is where we get this language of sacrifice. It's not about appeasing some angered wrath of God, but there was an understanding that if you needed to come close to God, you had to give up something very precious to you. Again, this is why you don't just go out and find some fruits and berries that you did not really have any claim to, that you didn't work to produce, but you would give something like a firstborn lamb. It was something that was precious. It was valuable. It's actually coming at a cost to you and your means of life. It is something which is a real sacrifice. And I mean that in the very literal use of the word sacrifice. You're giving up something very precious to you. And of course, people would do this circumstantially. If you go back before Jesus, there was not one sacrifice to rule them all. When Jesus comes to the equation, God is sending his, not a chosen son, not a picked because we really like how this one looks, or perhaps we really like Joseph and Mary. You know, they're such humble kids. Maybe we'll just let their child be something special. None of that. The thing was, is God sent his begotten son when actually derived from the father. It's a big deal. It's not something to to take lightly. And God says, I'm going to send something which will be one sacrifice to the Lord. No one is going to upstage this sacrifice. No one is going to upstage the blood of God. And that's really what we see happening there. The blood of the lamb, this whole idea of it is something which is A bit gory and it's a very vicious scene if you ever have seen the movie the passion of the christ you you've seen that there is quite a bit of gory detail there Um, when you actually read the passion narratives within the new testament it is a big deal but there's this idea that one sacrifice is being made that no other one will ever be able to upstage it is one sacrifice that'll be sufficient for all pastor mike
3: well, I may sound like a broken record here, but just to follow up on what you're saying, and that is identification. And the you see Christ, um, you know, great, the greater the brokenness in that relationship, in that covenant, you see the greater need for a greater sacrifice. And like exactly what you were saying, there what is greater than and more precious than one's own son? And so, with that being said, uh, the the life of Christ is also identification with us as creatures humanity and you see that in Jesus's baptism you see that in the temptation in the desert and it brings us to the suffering of Christ on the cross where I think there is a misunderstanding that it's a punishment and what do you think Dylan?
0: Well Pastor, actually I was wanted to before we get into this question of suffering or punishment because I think that's a big issue. Um, because a lot of people do think that the sort of wrath of God that has to be appeased, they they look at more the punitive side of the cross than perhaps the suffering side of the cross. We'll get to that in a second, but I don't want us to get too far away from something that Pastor Amanda brought up earlier about Adam's race. Mm-hmm. And I want us to talk a little bit about why this language is there, because it's something you'll find actually in the Article of Faith on Atonement. Um, so I want to throw this at Amanda. Why do we find this language of Adam's race? What are your thoughts on that? Just initially.
1: Well, I think initially um, it, it's kind of funny, and also we have to remember um, Adam or Adam is basically the human word for, or is the Hebrew word for human. Um, and so, so though we um, also uh, translate that to mean Adam, as in the individual or a, a person or a character, it also can just refer refer to humanity in, in general. And so Adam's race, we are kind of singling out, which there is no other human race other than human you know, like there's yeah. not there's not like a, a, a pseudo human race. <laughs> so it's kinda of funny. <laughs> this is
0: not elder scrolls, with right. Khajiits and Argonians.
1: All right. There's no other aliens to come into to the conversation, I guess. Um or extraterrestrials. Um, but but it is it is very specific in saying that that because this also references back when we talked last week about sin, um, because of Adam and, and Eve's choice to sin that has affected everyone who is their descendants. and that that of course is again everyone. Um, but and I think you've you've put in a passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 it talks about this as well um, about this first Adam that that brings about sin but also that the now there is a going to be a final atom or a last atom that will yeah. bring about ultimate salvation and and again as we we talk about this and i think then also as we transition to this idea of what what really happens at the cross and what happens at the resurrection is christ became like us so that we can become like him right and so the first Adam may predispose us to brokenness and destruction, to entropy and sin, but the last, the final atom, and when we say last, we, like, complete, utter, like, there is nothing else that's going to come better or fuller uh, than the last Adam, who is Christ, that now we don't have to stay like the first Adam, that we can be truly and completely transformed, and this is something we're going to get into when we go into, um, I think Article of Faith 9 where it's regeneration, justification, and adoption, then ultimately when we go to Article of Faith 10, which is entire sanctification or sanctification or whatever we're calling it now. Um, but that there's something that is happening even at atonement, that this gift of God's grace, this, this fully being at one with God, that we don't become God or like, or... God like, but we can become that image of God that we were originally created to be, and that is only found in the the life, death, and resurrection of Christ.
0: And yeah, and this requires some three dimensional thinking. It requires critical thinking. You're not becoming God, you're not being made into an idol, but you are being transformed more and more into the image of God, and you are taking some of the qualities of God and having them manifest in your life. Pastor Mike, I'll let you respond to all this. I think it's extremely important to realize when you go back
3: to Genesis that humanity, that Adam, was created in the image of God and understand that in, in our ancient world, um, images were were to show um, you know kingship and ownership of a territory. So you might have a statue, so to say, um, over a territory. And what that did, it told everyone who saw that statue that, that statue would reflect the king, would be an image of the king. And this yeah. this was, you know, territory belonged to that king. So when um, humanity was created in the image of God, it is saying that God is king of, of um, you know, the whole earth, that the living, breathing, walking statue image is humanity. And so sin, um, when it became out-of-right relationship, then there became this great need to be restored, to be reconciled, to be that image and being transformed back. So, um, you know, that's what we see in Christ Jesus being that really, even though you could say second Adam, and I think is what the language says,
0: it is that Jesus that is showing us what that image should be. Well, for people who might be confused about this language of second Adam, let's give them a reference for that and let's actually take a quick look at it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 through 49, we get an interesting discourse within Scripture. And it reads as follows. Verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not that the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we are born the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. So within English, we find this translated a lot of different ways. I was reading from the NRSV. But sometimes you might see it as the final atom, the ultimate atom. You might see something like the second man. There are a diff- few different ways that this is translated, but it's this idea of a second atom, the second man. It is pretty interesting. It is a moment of finality. Uh, back to that word, efficacious. <laughs> there is a efficacious nature to all of this. There's something which has a lasting effect. It is it is like a prescription. It is coming to give an antidote to something, but at the same time, it is three-dimensional. There's some dynamic things here. You can't really break it down into a single one-liner that will crush your enemies who ask questions about this. But instead, it is something where we have to come to the table and, and have some critical thinking and realize God was doing a lot of work when sending his son to die on the cross. And when Jesus goes to the cross, when the divine God-man goes on the cross. He is tearing down the veil of the temple. He's making it where people can actually approach God. They can now have a personal relationship with him. You don't have to have this holy of holies. The, the physical temple is, is starting to transform into a more spiritual temple. There is some, some different things going on here, and it is quite dynamic. And not only does it reach back to the beginning, going all the way back towards Adam, but also it moves us forwards and towards things like sanctification. It's very dynamic in its trajectory. Before we go over too much further, Anthony, you brought up an interesting proposition in regards to the gospel of John, chapter 1, and why you gave an interesting hypothesis as to why you might see John the Baptist being referenced there in in Genesis, or excuse me, John 1, as it mimics Genesis
2: one. Okay. Well, I don't have the time to lay out uh, all my evidences, but the opening of John very, very closely mirrors the opening of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and then the Word brought about creation. And in Genesis, God brings creation into being through speech. And so there's this connection there. There is light overcoming the darkness. And there's several other parallels. But what's interesting is, is that John the Baptist very well also parallels the creation of Adam. Because In the opening, it says basically, then there came a man, John the Baptist. But came, especially in that language, is very similar to the language of become. And so uh, there's this John the Baptist coming. He is becoming into the world. And so uh, in Genesis, Adam was made. And as Pastor Mike brought up earlier, image in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, aside from uh, other times whenever it's making reference to made in the image of God, that word is translated as statue. And so whenever you're considering that, what's the purpose of a statue? Well, it is to glorify, and it's to reveal the nature of whatever it is that it is depicting, and often it's a divine nature. And so Adam is supposed to depict or represent the divine nature of God. He's to glorify God. John the Baptist is sent to do the exact same thing in preparation for Christ. He sent... It's basically spelled out that John the Baptist is sent to glorify Jesus, to represent his divinity and to prepare the way for it. And so there is an interesting parallel even there that extends to John the Baptist perhaps being another type of Adam in his self. Although if you ever hear the second Adam, it's always definitely in reference to Jesus. But it is an interesting uh, thing to note that John the Baptist also sort of fills a very Adam-like role. Well,
0: there's there's a similarity in after you get these in-the-beginning statements is that there is a man glorifying God. John the Baptist, he glorifies God in a similar way that you see Adam glorifying God. It's something I I haven't heard someone make that connection before. It is kind of neat. Have either of y'all heard that? Pastor Amanda, Mm -hmm. Pastor Mike? I've
1: never heard Mm -hmm. that correlation made before, and I think it is really interesting because we really see, I mean, in the gospel stories, uh, I think John the Baptist kind of like He's really well represented at the beginning and then he kind of disappears and he comes back up again um at his beheading and then he disappears again. <laughs> um, but obviously uh, because of the beheading. But anyways, but there's, there's the this bat really bat important bat bat calling I think for for us as we look at the stories of the gospel of the life of Christ and we're like cuz you know often we look at the, the life of Christ and we're like well he only was perfect cuz he, you know, he was Jesus, he's fully god and fully human. And, and then but we also see this connection with John the Baptist says someone who was human and, and, and nothing else yet was still called to participate in the life of God and the life of the kingdom and to be this, this, this great means of grace, um, yep. to the entire world. And so like, so when we ask the question, you know, why did Jesus die on the cross? I think that's our answer. <laughs> so yeah. we uh, can be a means well, now of that grace.
0: That you've brought up this idea of means of grace. Let's go back to suffering <laughs> and punishment. Mm. You know, that, that's always like the, the nice contrast to grace punishment. Um, I'm tempted to say that like for those of the Wesleyan Armenian tradition, we all want a vacation where we just get to be fundamentalist for a week and just get to slap people down with gross motor skill things and be like, all right, baby, I'm going to have some some fundamentalist responses for you today. It's it's so tempting. Um, Pastor Mike, talk to us a little bit about suffering as opposed to punishment. Because there are people who say, well, someone needs to be punished for sin. And in order for God to be satisfied that there's been proper adjudication and punishment, we've got to send someone to the cross. But then there is a different idea that says that Christ is coming to to put on the sin and then suffer. Uh, would you talk to us a little bit about these different perspectives and where we line up as the Church of the Nazarene? Well, we, we line up in the Church of the Nazarene as, as suffering.
3: That is exactly uh, what is going on. And if you look at our Bible, it, uh, good translations always go to the suffering of Christ on the cross. And so uh, back to that image of God and that broken relationship, there has to be that sacrifice where suffering takes place uh, but the suffering is also about an identification. So there is suffering going on in this life and by Jesus coming and taking on flesh and blood having the both two natures, the nature divine nature of God obviously and then the um, human uh, creation nature, Jesus experiences temptation. He is baptized, as I said earlier, not because of him needing to repent from sin, because he identifies with humanity. And so as we see Jesus doing all of these, um, you know, living, sharing life with us, we we come to a place where this suffering on the cross is not just ending with suffering, but it also goes all the way to a death and a yeah. resurrection.
0: So, just, so Dylan? I just want to make sure that we're clear on this. So essentially, suffering is something intrinsic to life. It manifests on a wide variety of mediums. Suffering takes a lot of different forms, but essentially what you're saying is Jesus is taking on the human condition fully and taking on the human suffering and is going to experience that so that such can be conquered and there can be a new definition of life and death. Even death itself will will be defeated.
3: Well, there's the, the word vicar that... Is you know a um, subs you know really means a deputy or a substitute minister, Um, and but in the sense that it's not a substitute for us. In other words, what does that say? Could we could we die for our own sins? It kind of falls into that area of punishment sometimes. But our substitute is our vicar um, or vicarious. Christ, yeah. who not only relates and identifies with us, but also uh, ministers for us.
0: Right. Very good. One last thing that I want us to talk about before we, we wrap up our conversation. So one of the things missing from modern discourse is modern discourse is a proliferation of solid models of effective salvation. You look around, we don't have good role models of, of people really wanting to, to elevate and aspire towards moments where people are actually saved from real cr- crises. You take, for instance, somebody who has been addicted and they have a recovery from that. You know, this is a very powerful salvation from a real problem. We in our modern society, we, we've kind of got wrapped up in just a handful of stories and our, our language has kind of devolved. We've had a lot of things which have eroded our ability to think. And one of the things which is absolutely missing are solid models of effective salvation. There's a lot of make-believe heroism in our world, and rarely do we see people outlining cases of clearly defined victory. Furthermore, we see a lot of people who, they're really good at displaying the aesthetic of being victorious in something, or displaying the aesthetic of being virtuous, but rarely do we actually see the effects of true victories. And when those true victories do happen in life, a lot of times our world isn't very interested in it. They're more interested in the drama. They're kind of like a shark in the water who's like, ah. You know, I could celebrate this, but there's blood over there and I smell that. And I'd really go wallow in the, the, the pits of that than I would actually aspire towards the victories that we can have in life. And of course, Jesus's death on the cross, it is the ultimate victory. Yeah. But it's something that as we aspire towards it, I think we need to, to really recognize the role model that this is in saying that, hey, we need to aspire for victories in our own life. We need to look at the power of Jesus and say that we can actually find liberty. We can, we can find victory. I'm gonna throw this over to, to the whole crew here for discussion in a moment, but let me read from Hebrews chapter two, verses six through nine, and it reads as follows. But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you might be mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with the glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside of their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with the glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When you read this, this sounds like victory. Jesus is tasting death, he is atoning for sin, he is suffering the death of humanity. But in doing this, he is giving people something to aspire for. This is victorious. Pastor Amanda, let me throw that to you.
1: Okay. Well, you know, as you were talking about that and um, about kind of fake heroes and things like that, um, I I, I immediately was thinking about um, in in literature and in movies and storytelling, there is a, a literary device called the Deus Ex Machina, which is the god of the machine. And um, some examples of, of a Deus Ex Machina is kind of at the end of Lord of the Rings, where the the Eagles come in at the last minute and they pick up Frodo and Sam or in the original Star Wars, which sorry Anthony, spoil alerts because apparently he's never seen the original Star Wars movie, but we'll move on um, where Han Solo sweeps in the last minute and uh, shoots the <laughs> the TIE Fighters, so Luke can, can blow up the Death Star. Those are the deus ex machina, those things that just happen unexpectedly, they really have no rhyme or reason within the story itself, but they save the day. And I think for a lot of us we reduce salvation to a deus ex machina. We kind of reduce it to like, oh well one t- at one point Jesus died, we've got our salvation, we're good, and we move on with life. And, and when we hear this passage from Hebrews, we hear something so much better, so much more dynamic than that, that this kind of salvation, this kind of atonement, reaches deeper than that. And like you said, this death is for everyone, that yes, it did happen at one point, one time, it, you know, it happened at a specific location, at a specific time and place, um, bound in, in, in finite um, rules and paradigms, and yet, Because Jesus, fully human and also fully God, experienced death and resurrection, swallowed up all of human existence, and that then we have this grace for salvation and atonement to become something so much more. I mean, I like this language of little lower than the angels, and then maybe not a little bit lower than the (laughs) angels, and there's something, you know, and and there's different perspectives of angels and demons and things like that. But something is happening where the paradigm is shifting where we no longer are trapped in the the old way of the world, but something new is coming. And it is final, it is complete, but it all, is also dynamic and eternal and happens every moment and every day.
0: Pastor Mike, talk to us a little bit about priest, prophet, and king. I know that's something you're... Well, I, I
3: love what the Hebrew writer, uh, one of the literary skills that... He or she uses there where it reaches back and says, you know, somewhere it is written referring, you know, really to the psalmist. But it, it there is it, we use the term Old Testament, but it is truly scriptures. And even though we we have a you know terminology of you Old Testament, New Testament, the beauty of what we call the Old Testament scriptures, they are extremely important to knowing our loving God, knowing how atonement uh, works into our life and is very pertinent to the life that we live. I have found that uh, there are three voices in the Old Testament, priest, prophet, and king. And we see Jesus fulfilling those roles. So the priestly role, of course, he is the great high priest. He is our our minister. uh, And that Identification is so strong that he represents us. Uh, he's also, um, you know, fulfilling and the perfection of the law. A and victorious, victorious, Perfect. yeah. So yep. that would even fall under the kingship that God is King, and that Christ Jesus, uh, all of these uh, priest, prophet, kings are associated with anointing, and so we see that. Jesus being the messiah the anointed one all of this comes together and so even our our um, when we talked about the Holy Spirit convincing the world of sin even the true beauty of what we would call the torah or the the law it is a means of grace that god has given us to live in right relationship to convince us of sin. If it, if it becomes a legalism or, you know, a legality type thing, then we're truly missing the love and beauty that God has given us to live in right relationship and what the law was designed for. So we see Jesus not only, you know, fulfilling the priestly role, but the prophet role and the king.
0: And that, that is a, a very victorious thing. Though Amen. I was a little bit worried earlier. I think everyone in the room we were worried that Marcion was about to come out. We heard <laughs> we heard this whole idea, well, you've got the Old Testament. It is really scriptures. I thought there was about to have to be a debate that the Old Testament isn't scripture. Um, the Marcion mask. I mean, we did resurrect... Mar- or right. Professor Resumechdor, man, so that, that there are Marcians in dubious the dubious character today. <laughs> did come to resurrect him. Um, he's, a, he's a baddie. Yeah. Uh, They're planning on... There've been talks about Cillian Murphy being the new James Bond. He seems a bit more like more fitting to be a, a someone cast as Marcion than he would be James Bond. That's <laughs> yeah. another note for another moment.
2: A search mm-hmm. uh, scary character. Yeah, such Maybe a, a one dark used character. For birds.
0: For I don't know where this is going. <laughs> oh a scarecrow. Yeah, he's, he's scarecrow and Batman. But anyways, oh. <laughs> wrapping this conversation up, does anyone have any final thoughts about atonement?
1: No, I I think, and this is something again. It's difficult because in articles of faith we do have to segment them out because we have to talk about them in in a reasonable and orderly way. Um, But this idea of atonement, I think we touched on back. Uh, last week when we talked about sin, but we're going to see the effects of atonement throughout prevenient grace, or really we see the effects of prevenient grace and atonement is what I would argue. But we can do that later, um, and then we see that in our next few articles as we go well, to I'm... repentance, regeneration, adoption, justification, and um, entire sanctification, and we're going to even see that in, in our articles of faith of, of about the church. And yeah. this is really going to permeate our conversation for the next five or six weeks. Because this is such, even though it's such a small article of faith, it has a huge impact of what yeah, we're going to talk about. It does. Because nothing we talk about will ever make sense unless we know what Christ did for us. Because yeah. without Christ, all of this is, is foolishness, as as Paul would say.
0: Yeah, and, and ultimately it is. And that's kind of how people work. This idea that like, oh, you just come in and give a nice, reasonable, compelling argument, people will persuade. No. People kind of have to make their mind up because everything is ultimately either nonsense or it's not. Well, absolutely we, true, and that's kind of the argument Paul makes, Pastor Mike. Yeah, well, and you know, this is something's that been going on ever since
3: the really Jesus walks face of the earth. Uh, but even Irenaeus makes the is one of the first fathers who makes the uh, argument that you know we have fallen from that being that image of God that we were created to be, and and so he is the really uh, the first, I guess, church father to start putting together some of these atonement theories and uh, bringing us back to the image of God and the work of Christ
0: on the cross. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us. If you would like to support us, please just grab a link, share it with your friends. We are trying to provide people good theological content. Again, we are pastors in the Church of the Nazarene. If you would like to support us financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash Again, we're on YouTube, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, a whole lot of different places. And thank you for joining us. God love you and have a blessed day.